0: As I mentioned earlier in our service, we're turning now to the very end of the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. We'll be focusing on that passage that begins at verse 16. I'll read a little bit more to lead up to it. And just to get our bearings, these... Days on Sunday mornings, over the course of these four Sunday mornings, and today is the last of them, the fourth of them, we are celebrating the 50th birthday of our denomination. It was in December of 1973 that the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, was formed. We're marking that milestone, and over these last few weeks, we've been marking it, by making the most of that three-part slogan that our denomination adopted pretty early on as a way of capturing the things that we're committed to as a denomination, a three-part slogan, faithful to the Scriptures, true to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And last week we focused on the second of them, true to the Reformed faith, and you may remember we turned to Ephesians 2. In order to explore that theme, Ephesians 2, we were dead in sin. God made us alive. And God made us alive in order that we should walk in good works. True to the Reformed faith. So that brings us to this week. That brings us to the third part of this three-part slogan, which is obedient to the Great Commission. And so naturally... Matthew 28 is where we are turning. Take a look at verse 1, and I'll read a little bit to get us to the Great Commission at the end. Picking up now at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, skipping down to verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Matthew, who recorded that gospel for us. We pray that you would open our eyes now to behold the wonders that you have for us here. For we would see Christ, and we would be refreshed again in our calling in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. One of my all-time favorite movie endings. I decided this morning I'm not even going to tell you the name of the movie. In case you haven't seen it. And someday you do. We will have no spoilers here at New Hope. It's one of our commitments as a congregation. All I'll say is, part of the plot is, there's this guy who runs for public office. And he wins. And he's clearly caught off guard by the fact that he wins. He's elected. He's not entirely sure what to make of this and what this means now. And on election night, when it's become clear that he's just won, at the hotel where his campaign team, Is set up, as you might imagine. It's celebration and it's chaos and it's crowds. And in the midst of all of that celebration and chaos and crowds, the candidate motions to his campaign manager. He wants a quiet moment with him in a setting in which quiet moments are nearly impossible to find. So he has a question for his campaign manager. So he calls him aside into a quiet room. They close the door. And the candidate looks at his campaign manager and he says, what do we do now? And then he says it again, but the second time it's drowned out by the celebration and the chaos and the crowds that have now burst into the room so that it's not quiet anymore. He says it again. What do we do now? It is such a great moment. We've won. Now what? He has the sense that the winning was only the beginning. And so now the question of the hour is, what do we do now that we've won? The triumph was for something, right? It was always supposed to lead to something, wasn't it? And so now the question of the hour is, what is that something? What do we do now? How do we take this victory that we've accomplished and do something with it and use it rightly? Well, on the third day after he died, Jesus of Nazareth was alive again. And I mean, he wasn't just alive again. He was alive again now with glorious resurrection life, which was unprecedented in the whole of human experience. He won. He triumphed. He prevailed. He prevailed over sin and misery and death and hell. And not only that, but he appeared to several of his disciples so that they knew they were confused, but they knew that he had won. He triumphed. He prevailed. Well, at that point, for the disciples of Jesus of Nazareth, we can put it this way. The question of the hour was, what do we do now? The winning was only the beginning. The triumph was for something. It was always supposed to lead to something. And so now the question is, what is that something? What do we do now? How do we take this victory And and do something with it. Make proper use of it going forward. That's a great question. And a great question deserves a great commission. And sure enough, Jesus gives them one. Of course, it wasn't a question that Jesus was asking. Christ wasn't asking. Christ is the one who is answering any questions that they might have been entertaining. And you can imagine just what the disciples needed after his resurrection. And we do have to imagine it. I mean, this is a a moment in history unlike any other before it or since. You can imagine what his disciples needed. One, we need a sense of grounding so that we can gain our footing in what is a tumultuous moment. Two... We need instructions so that we know what we're supposed to do going forward. And three, we need hope. So that we can pour ourselves into this cause knowing that his triumph will become ours. And that this will not turn out to be a spectacular failure. And I'll mention those three again because those are basically our three points this morning. We need a sense of grounding. We need instructions. And we need hope. And all three of those are in here. In in this Great Commission passage. Especially verses 18 through 20. So our three points this morning. The ground of the Great Commission. And then the substance of the Great Commission. What exactly... He commissions them and us to do. And then finally, the reassurance of the Great Commission, which gives them hope and gives us that same hope. The ground of it, the substance of it, and the reassurance of it. So, first of all, the ground of the Great Commission. Take a look again at verse 16, because this sets the stage. Remember, he had said, I want my disciples to go to this mountain in Galilee. while well, here it's happening. Verse 16. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. And then it says, but some doubted. That's a fascinating little detail, isn't it? Some doubted. The idea isn't that they didn't believe Instead, it's that some of them must have struggled more than the others to feel settled about what must have been an exceedingly unsettling and challenging thing for them to wrap their minds around. He's alive. He's gloriously alive. No wonder that some struggled more than others to feel settled about it. To gain their footing. In any case, what follows then in verse 18 is the ground of the Great Commission. Verse 18 Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is saying, I have now been given authority to reign over all things. The universe is is under my feet, under my control. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, admittedly, it might seem like a strange thing for the Son of God to say something like, I have been given authority. And that might seem strange to our ears because, after all, he is the Son of God. And if he is the Son of God, then surely he doesn't need to be given authority. Surely he just has it because he's God. Well, In one sense, that's true. In another sense, it's not. It's certainly true that as God, and without apology, brothers and sisters, we've got to do a little bit of theology here, as God... As the eternal, divine Son of God, equal in deity with the Father and the Spirit, it's certainly true, yes, this person reigns over all things, and he always has, and he always will, in a way that even transcends time itself. And that is a reign, that is an authority, that he didn't have to be given. He just possesses it as God, that's certainly true. But that's not the whole truth. And I say that because now it's also true that this divine Son of God took to himself a true human nature. And that changes everything. In the fullness of time, this divine Son of God was born of Mary in Bethlehem where there was no room for them in the inn. He took to himself a true human nature in addition to his divine one. And in that nature, in, in that true human nature, well, the incarnate Son of God was absolutely capable of, of, of growing, learning, developing, even receiving receiving things that he did not possess before, including, finally, the authority granted to him by the Father to reign over all things in order to realize all of God's purposes. It is the incarnate Son of God as man. It is the man Christ Jesus, as Paul puts it in 1 Timothy who is granted that authority by his Father. And then, if we were to ask the question, well, when exactly was he granted it? When did that happen? Well, that's one of those questions that the Bible answers in in a layered, unfolding way. In eternity past, I mean, before time itself, it was decreed that it should be so. And then when he was born in Bethlehem, he was born into this destiny. And then when he was baptized to inaugurate his public ministry, he was publicly signaled in this way. But we're really getting to the heart of the matter when we get to his resurrection from the dead. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. That's Romans 1. When he was raised on the third day, then especially, this authority was given to him, so that at the end of Matthew 28, it is the risen Christ, not yet taken up into heaven, who can already say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So that's our, our first of three points this morning, the ground of the Great Commission. And here's why this matters. Here's why this matters for us as a congregation here in Fairfax and as a denomination, the whole of the PCA. What this ground means is that the marching orders that we're about to be given as a church in this passage, once we get past verse 18, These marching orders have been given to us by somebody who has the absolute right to give them. Sometimes it's the case that somebody gives instructions or they issue demands and they don't have the authority to do so. Like after President Reagan was shot and the Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, steps up to the podium at the White House and says, I'm in charge now. And everybody's thinking, uh, no, you're really not. And it made for some confusion that day, and a tumultuous day. When, everybody starts, when anybody starts giving instructions, who doesn't really have the authority to give them? It's chaotic at best. As the Church of Jesus Christ, we can be well assured that the mission he's given us is one that we're absolutely right to be committed to precisely because he gave it. And it is an expression of his comprehensive authority that he should give us these marching orders. And so we can be committed to this commission. And that means that we can be courageous in it because it comes from him. And being courageous in it means pressing on In this commission, come what may, we can be courageous in it. And it also means that we need to be careful with it because it comes from him who has all authority. Being careful with our mission as a church means that we don't have the standing, we don't have the right, we don't have the prerogative to add to it, to take away from it. To modify it to suit the preferences of the age, and brothers and sisters, isn't that always the temptation that the church faces—to modify its sense of mission depending upon the prevailing winds and preferences of the world and the time? So that's why I say both courage and and carefulness. Why? Because all authority belongs to our great commissioner. That's why. That's the ground of the great commission. So that brings us to our second point, which is the substance of this commission. What exactly are these marching orders that Jesus gave to his disciples that remain to this day as the mission of the church? Well, look at verse 19. Here's what he tells them to do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is the substance of this commission. So what does he say to them? Well, first of all, he says, go. In other words, don't just stand there. Go out into the world. It's true, right now, I'm yours and you're mine. I'm your Lord, you're my servants. But this was never meant to be just for you. Go. It's true, you're my first followers. But you're certainly not going to be my last. Go. And then what does he say next? He says, make disciples of all nations. In other words, go and preach the word and call, call people to follow me so that they become my disciples. And notice he says, call all people to follow me. This was never meant to be just for us Jews, he's saying to them. Make disciples of all nations. That's why we heard from Isaiah 11 earlier in our service. This was the plan all along. What does he say next? He says, well, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In other words, these people who are my disciples in the world, here's how I want them to be signified as my disciples. Baptize them. Baptize them into the one name of the one triune God. And then finally, what does he say? He says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, these people who are my disciples in the world, I want them to be fully trained in the way of faith and life that I've handed to you. And what that means, and this is an important lesson for us, an important correction for us in our broader evangelical world. What that means is that the Great Commission is not just about communicating an initial message about how to be saved. It includes that. But it includes a whole lot more than that. It starts there, but it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. It keeps going to take in the whole counsel of God. Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's the substance of this great commission. On the one hand, it's relatively simple. Jesus doesn't say a whole lot here. He doesn't have to. In a sense, the rest of the New Testament, the letters of the apostles are going to unpack what this means, what this looks like in the life of the church. Here, the end of Matthew, it's relatively simple. On the other hand, it is rather comprehensive, especially that last part. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you so that this commission may be streamlined in its outline, but it is comprehensive, it is sweeping in its teaching content. That is the substance of the Great Commission. And here too, brothers and sisters, we want to reflect upon what this means for us today, what this means for us as a church. It's so important for the church to have a clear understanding of its mission. And I say that because there's so much confusion in the world today about the church's mission. What exactly is the church? What do we exist for? Is the church just a voting block, a demographic category that shows up in election polls? Here's how the church is going to vote this year. Here's how we can mobilize the church to vote our way this time. Is that all we are? That is the way some people think about the church anymore, especially as our elections get more and more heated. Or is the church just a society for civic improvement? Or is the church just a a help group for personal improvement? Or is the church just a mouthpiece that speaks truth to power and then protests when it disagrees? Is that all we are? So much confusion in the world today about the church's mission. Brothers and sisters, ours is a truly great commission, and it's here. Even if there are all sorts of fringe benefits and related effects that the church has in the world, let's never lose sight of what Christ has actually called us to be about. Seek ye first this great commission. And all other good things shall be added unto you. This is our business. No more, no less. This is the substance of a truly great commission. And then that brings us to the third of our three points here, which is the reassurance that Jesus gives them and gives us after laying out these marching orders. So our first point was the ground of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our second point was the substance of it. We've seen what the marching orders were and are. Now our third point is the reassurance that he gives them. And it's there at the end of verse 20, the very end of the gospel. He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ is promising That he's going to be with his church. Now, of course, as soon as he's taken up into heaven. Well, at that point, he's not going to be with his church physically anymore. The way he has been. But he is with us. And I mean right now this morning. He is with us in that. Ours is an unbroken relationship. To him. We are in Christ and he in us. this, This is a union with Christ that is unlike any other relationship, any other bond, any other connection that you've ever experienced in your life. Ours is an unbroken relationship to him. And he is with us in that by his word and spirit at work in our lives, he gives us a sense of that grants us to know it and to feel it. By his word and spirit, he's ever at work in us and among us, guiding us, leading us, using us, even transforming us. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's the reassurance that Jesus gives here at the very end of Matthew. And let me say three things about this reassurance. One, it's down to earth. And I mean literally, it's down to earth where the church is located and going about its mission. Think about it. This is a man. This is a God man who just said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you know what it's like sometimes when people are given authority. You know how it goes sometimes, especially when they're given very impressive authority. You find yourself thinking, well, that's the last we're ever going to see of him. Maybe it's somebody who's been promoted on the job. Maybe it's somebody who wins election to public office. You find yourself thinking, well, that's, that's the last we're ever going to see of him. He's not going to want to have anything to do with us anymore. He's going to forget all about us, the little people. He's moved up. We have not. This is going to go to his head. This is goodbye. And it is not so with Jesus. The Son of God, who came all the way down from heaven to earth in order to save us. That same Son, even after he's been raised from the dead and taken up into heaven. And seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, even then, by his word and spirit, he's still going to stoop down and commune with us. Even then, seated at the Father's right hand with all authority, even then, he's going to stay with us. That's why I say this reassurance is down to earth. And then second we can say this about it as well this reassurance is just what the disciples needed it's just what they needed I mean think about it the commission that Jesus just gave to his disciples in verses 19 and 20 it's a lot it's daunting go make disciples baptize them teach them teach them everything That's a high calling. That's a a profound responsibility. This is what you might call a gulp moment. And maybe you can think of a time in your own life when you were given a daunting assignment and you could almost feel the gulp in your chest when it began to sink in what you'd been assigned to do. I was thinking it's a little like when you get a syllabus for a class that you've enrolled in and it's day one. Day one. You get the syllabus at the beginning of the semester on day one, and at first glance, it might seem a little daunting. It might seem a lot daunting. The material that you're going to cover in this class, the assignments that you're going to have to complete, the tests that you're going to have to study for, might seem a little overwhelming. But then it's at that point on day one that the professor announces, this is when I'll be holding office hours. It's the professor's way of saying, in his own professorial way, I'm with you. And I'm going to be. I'm going to be with you all semester. I know it's a lot, as the one who's taught this course before. But I'm with you, and I'm going to be. Until the semester's over, all the way to the end, you're going to be able to come to me, and I'm going to be there to help you. All along the way. Well, after the commission that Jesus just gave to his disciples, you can imagine that might have been something of a gulp moment for them. Are we really up for this? Are we really up for this on our own? And that's exactly when Jesus effectively puts a hand on their collective shoulder and says, You won't be. On your own. You'll never be. On your own. I am with you. I will always be with you. This reassurance is just what they needed. And then a third point to make about this reassurance it's down to earth, it's just what they needed. And then here's a third it's got some history behind it. For the disciples themselves. At the end of Matthew, it's got some history behind it. Here's what I mean. I mean, This is quite a promise that he's making here. I am with you and I always will be. To the end of the age. That's quite a promise. Well, if there was even the slightest whiff of doubt in their minds that he would keep that promise. They would have been able to remind themselves of their own personal history with him. They would have been able to tell themselves for three years, he has never once left us nor forsaken us. Three years of public ministry culminating in his crucifixion. Three years of ministry that at times pained him and wearied him, including three years of our own boneheaded bickering as his disciples. Three years of our own petty pride. About who's the most important. Three years of our own cluelessness about his cause and kingdom. And never once did he leave us or forsake us along the way. Turns out even when he died and he was gone from us for three days. It turns out even then he hadn't really left us. So for him to say now I am with you always to the end of the age the disciples could say, of course he is. And of course he will be, because that's who he is. And that's who he's been all along. We've seen it. And so we can trust him now. This reassurance for the disciples had that history behind it. And it still does. This is the reassurance of the Great Commission. And and brothers and sisters, this one too, this third of our three points, is something that we ought to take to heart. Christ is with us as a church, as a denomination, for these 50 years, with our congregation here in Fairfax for these 34 years. He's with us. And that includes right now, this morning, in this worship service. Christ is honoring his promised reassurance. Christ is with us. Friends, whatever heartbreak you've known, whatever abandonment you've experienced, whatever faithless leaving or forsaking you've been on the receiving end of in your relationships with others, it is not so with Jesus. He doesn't bail. He hasn't. He won't ever. He's with us. The ground, the substance, and the reassurance of the Great Commission. They're all here to be found and to be embraced. And here we are considering this on December the 17th, of 2023. So we're about to go into a new calendar year. It'll be the 51st year of the PCA. It'll be the 34th year of New Hope. I suppose since both of those birthdays are now behind us in the rearview mirror, then we've already entered our 51st and 34th years as a denomination and as a congregation respectively. When it comes to our denomination, we ought to be grateful for this. That Christ by his grace has enabled us, has enabled the PCA with all of our faults and flaws and failings to be obedient to this commission. The PCA planted this flag in 1973 and we've stood by it. And that includes our denomination's commitment to missions around the world and the planning of churches, new churches here. In the U.S., But it's not just the proclamation of the gospel around the world and the planting of new churches here. It's also the ongoing life of every PCA congregation, Sunday after Sunday and the six days in between, just like our worship service right now. The Great Commission is happening right now in this room. We ought to be grateful that the PCA staked out this commitment. And I mean build it into its slogan from the beginning that this was our commitment to be obedient to this commission and that Christ by his grace has enabled us to hold fast to it. And then when it comes to our congregation we can be grateful and we can be encouraged as we press on into a new year our 34th year. Here at the end of the calendar year, as we always do, the officers of the congregation are preparing a budget for next year. And we're planning and pondering and praying as we go about the business of preparing that budget. And then not too deep into January, as we always do, we'll get together as a congregation. And we'll talk together as a congregation about that budget. About our plans for ministry in the years to come, and we'll pray together as a church. Well, let's be reminded today Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, is why we do all of that. Not just to keep an organization going so that we see another birthday, not just to get the numbers right on the budget spreadsheet but to seek to be obedient to the greatest of commissions. And that lends a sense of of, of meaning and nobility, even drama, gospel drama, to all that we're about as a congregation. We want to keep our eyes on that. So let's be renewed as a church. And let's pray for the Lord's strength and guidance and encouragement as a church. Let's pray right now. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you. And we acknowledge you as the King and Head of the Church. We thank you that we stand on very solid ground, the ground of the truth. Of your comprehensive authority, we look up with the eyes of faith and we see you seated at the Father's right hand, all things under your feet, ordering all things for the sake of the church. We do thank you for these marching orders that you've given us. We ask that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on them, not to be distracted from them not to add to them or take away from them or to modify them. Help us to be courageous and careful with this commission. And we thank you for this staggering promise, and you've always kept it and you always will, that you are with us. So may we be reassured and hopeful as those first disciples were, as your disciples were, have been ever since throughout the ages. We pray these things for your glory among us. Amen.